So today I want to follow up on a sermon that I preached about nine months ago. Uh, that was actually a follow-up to a sermon I preached two years before that. So <laughs> this is the shortest, longest sermon series in history. Uh, it's just, just enough time between sermons that you can lose it in both your short-term and your long-term memory. Um, so the sermon, I'm just going to give you a little review. So on your outline, if you see review, the reason it's there, well, it, it should be there, is so that you can write down a few things if you want to write things down or just remember that sermon in, when was that, July? I talked about uh, creating a culture of candor. That was the title. Maybe it's ringing bells, maybe not. It's okay. Uh, what I said there was in order to get to a place where we could speak freely about how we feel, what we think, who we are, and, uh, and feel safe, candor, that's, that's the ability to, to speak your mind, right? We had to evaluate our value system. And our value system, if we align it with God's value system and we, and we see where we're off and then move deeper in the heart of God, we need to be challenged. It's the conforming to reality, his reality that I just talked about. And the point was to get to a place, I mean, we started at like our value, you know, the shallow values would be like academic achievement, athletic achievement, appearance, wealth, whatever. And then you move a little deeper into character and you move a little deeper into someone who boasts in the cross of Jesus. You move a little deeper into the fact that they're just those things called selves, and that's why God loves us. And then you move even one layer deeper to the place where God is not calling the righteous but sinners and that he actually welcomes us despite who we are. He welcomes, welcomes us despite who we are, not because of who we are. And if the gospel is set, t- telling you, that, that the essence of the gospel is telling you that you are welcome in your weakness, then we ought to be able to freely welcome one another in our weakness. That was the aim of that sermon, if you remember. And if you don't, I just said it. So... That's what the gospel offers at its heart, is for you to be able to speak your weakness freely. To be able to say, this is who I am with all candor. And I thought to myself, Buster always says self, uh, it may be that coming, your response to that would be, I appreciate that Jesus welcomes me in my weakness. And I appreciate that I, I could be safe or free in this congregation with my weakness, but I'm good. I'm fine. Like, I don't, I, don't, I don't want them to know all my stuff. That's, that's private stuff. And I don't need them to know what's going on in my heart. I'm happier with just them knowing my family on a kind of surface to medium level. And I, I prefer it that way. So that's what I want to address this morning. I have several cues for you. I boxed myself into cues when I started with the question. Uh, you know, sometimes I like to be alliterative because it helps you remember. But I don't know if you're going to remember these cues. Uh, it's the question, the quintessence, the quandary, the quest, and then I, didn't even, I couldn't even think of a key word for the last one. Um, but here's the question. The question to you this morning is, is your desire for the preservation of your image greater than your desire for intimacy? Is the desire for the preservation of your image greater than your desire for intimacy? And when I say the preservation of in- image, I don't just mean how you look, like your external appearance, Uh, I would say that we live in a specific region of the, not even region, a a city (laughs) of the country where we have an extremely disproportionate over-desire for pretty outward appearance. All right? It it could be its own sermon. Our our desire for outward appearance here in, in east of the Cooper is inordinate. That's not what I'm talking about today. 
But I do think the, the amount of money and energy and time going in to get ourselves looking a certain way to preserve the fountain of youth is striking. Uh, have you ever stood outside the Whole Foods market? Um, uh, I was there in November, early December, somewhere in there. We were getting a Christmas tree because for some reason Whole Foods has cheap Christmas trees that are good. And so we got our Christmas tree from there. It was a nice smelling Fraser, I think. And uh, we like the live ones because of the smell. You can fabricate it, but it's not the same. And so we're standing there, and I'm watching people walk in, and I thought, boy. And I know that I'm an over I, I grew up here, too. I'm an over-desirer of what I look like. I've, I've, I've spent too much time in the mirror in my life. I'm, wa- I'm watching people walk in thinking, man, it's almost strange looking. How fit, how orangely tan, how, how put together people are in their external appearance. And then... The next thought is something like, and many of you know this well, we live in this process of decay, and in just a minute, like just a few years, your whole your eye, you're going to be wrinkly and and have you know this thing going, and and you're going to be droopy, and people look like Sharpays after a certain amount of time, okay, <laughs> and. That's just where we're going. Beauty is fleeting. And the reason that it's fleeting is not because we won't be beautiful in heaven. We will. We will have glorified bodies and everybody will look perfect forever. And we will admire one another's beauty. But the beauty of heaven is that we won't be anxious about our own beauty. We'll be looking at everybody else's and we'll be looking at Jesus. You won't be sitting there going, how do I look? How about now? How about now? How about now? You won't be doing that. So in the meantime, I think one of the reasons that God has given us this process of decay, even as a curse, one of the ways that he has redeemed it is to say, just remember, in 30 years, Sharpay. So that you don't have to be consumed with how you look. But that's a different sermon. The, 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 the preservation of your image in this question, is your desire for the preservation of image greater than your desire for intimacy? I mean like your full, the full life presentation, your moral togetherness, your financial togetherness, uh, your profession or like your vocation your career all of that together how your family is presented is your desire to preserve your image greater than your desire for intimacy when I say intimacy it's for people to know you and to be to be known by them and to know them or to put it another way would you rather look like you have it together or be known altogether do I look like you have it together or to be known altogether I think it's a hard question because you might be thinking and maybe you thought this nine months ago why do they need to know my junk Money know my stuff? Why can't I just kind of keep it surface level? Can, can I continue to be respected and maybe not known on that level? Now, you all know the right answer to the question, or I wouldn't be posing the question. The right answer is to desire intimacy more than the preservation of your image. And most of you, I think, would say that. I would say that. That's what I want. But what does your life say? What does your life say? That's the question. Take, take a few seconds and examine your life. Just a minute. What does your life say? Does it show that you would rather preserve your image than be known? I'll give you a few little kind of trivial litmus tests. Here's one. How do you feel if somebody pops over to your house and it isn't immaculate? How do you feel when they, they, they come in and it's not vacuumed or the kids' toys are on the floor or whatever it might be? Do you, do you profusely apologize? You get flushed? If you have to drop your kid off at PCA in your pajamas... How do you feel if you don't have your Starbucks in hand? How do you, uh, well, I gotta be careful. Um, 
when people come to your house, this is, is, it, is it like the Von Trapp family, okay? Uh, if you've ever seen The Sound of Music, you know, they got their little, like, dog whistle, and it brings everybody in, and then they stand there in a line, and it's like, Brigitte, Kurt, Liesel, and, and the whole thing. Is it, is it like that? Do people think of you as the Von Trapps? Do they think of you as all together? I mean, people come over to my house, and this is where I feel the, the rub, and I have to ask myself the questions, because our, our family is like the Serengeti. It's like you come over... And somebody's going to jump on you predatorily from somewhere. Like, you're going to get a dive bomb on you. The kids are taking turns being predators. Not really, but, I mean, it's like somebody's a lion and somebody's a wildebeest all the time. They're coming at each other. And it's wild. And they're grabbing phones and doing Snapchat on the college students' phones that are over our house. And I'm like, that's their phone. And and you have this moment where you go, "Uh uh-oh, they're going to know that we're not all together. And there are things about our house that are chaotic. Shoot, and I feel this uh, a little bit of panic in that moment. And so I ask you, how does that feel? Are there private things in your life, private? And I say, I I put private on my outline in quotes because I told you last time, privacy is not really a biblical value. It's an American value, okay? When you start talking about, well, those are just personal and private things. And obviously, I don't mean like go put on your Twitter account, you know, your digestive Health. I just mean, I mean, the Bible doesn't emphasize privacy about, privacy is a cop-out in America that keeps you from having to talk about things that matter a lot of the time. But what, are there private things in your life that prevent you from stepping into the doors of the church, from coming to community group, losing your job, something like that that you say, well, I wasn't coming to church for a while because my life was out of order, and using euphemisms like that. What does your life say? But the bigger question is, what does the Bible say? I don't want to assume that the right answer to the question is that you should, we should just be known. We should have intimacy as opposed to preserving our image and be respectable in a, in a cultural sense. I want to look at the Bible. So we're going to look at John chapter 17, verses 1 through 3, verses 20 through 23. And this moves us from the question to the quintessence. If you don't use quintessence a lot as a word, you might use the word quintessential. Quintessential means quintessence is basically a synonym for essence, except I think it goes a little bit deeper. It points right to the heart of something. The quintessence. The question is, what is the central aim? What's the core unit of our lives? Let's look at John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So this is where he's about to be crucified. This is what Jesus being glorified looks like. Crucifixion. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. Pause. Whatever he's about to say is important. Like you want to want to perk up your ears for whatever eternal life is. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So what Jesus says is eternal life is he already has established some sort of relational context. That they know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. But that's still fairly broad. Like, I'm not exactly sure. John 17, 3, there's been a lot of examination of it, but it's pretty broad. And I just decided, let's read through the rest of the high priestly prayer and see where we're going. And one spot really intrigued me. If you go to verses 20 through 23, Jesus is elaborating on his prayer for his people, for his disciples, what eternal life actually looks like. And he says in verses 20 to 23, I do not ask for these only, meaning his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, I put those italics in there, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, 
that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, this is getting redundant, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So here's the thing that struck me about that passage. It is completely relational. Relationship is this core unit, this quintessence. Jesus is saying, my prayer for their eternal life is that they would come into this relational dynamic that we have had from all eternity past. Father and Son with the Holy Spirit as whatever dynamic between them. I can't explain to you the Trinity very well, but that's something like the idea, the love between them. And, and he's saying, in the overflow of our love and our intimacy, we made these people that they would be able to be brought into this fellowship and they would know and love one another the way that we know and love one another. And that is eternal life. That they would know you, God, vertically, and then as an outworking of that, connect to one another in this Trinitarian sort of way. That is eternal life. That they may be one as we are one. George MacDonald said it this way, talking about heaven, his thoughts on heaven. He says, I think we shall be able to pass into and through each other's very souls as we please, knowing each other's thought and being along with our own and so being like God. So to partake in the divine nature is to know each other's thought and being. Intimacy, relationship is at the core, at the heart of eternal life. To know one another's thought and being. Brent Curtis called it uh, multiple intimacy without promiscuity. We know each other all the way. That is where we're going. That's heaven. So we have this heavenly ideal, and then we have just our normal felt human desires. I was reading an article on Tiger Woods this week, for any of you who frequent ESPN.com. I do. And it was an article on the, the demise of Tiger Woods. I don't remember the exact title. It was a really intriguing article. It actually made me root for Tiger, feel sad for him and root for him more, but... This is not a discussion on how much you like Tiger Woods. I want redemption in his life and his golf game. Um, but in it, it was describing his relationship with Michael Jordan, who were kind of like Tiger was going into his prime as Michael Jordan was leaving, but they're two of the big icons in sport. And Michael Jordan, who certainly has been known to have his own challenges with life and happiness, he said this about Tiger. He said, he has, and then pause, searching for the right word, about Tiger, no companion. He has to find that happiness within his life. That's the thing that worries me. I don't know if he can find that type of happiness. He's going to have to trust somebody. So Michael Jordan, athlete, puts his finger on the longing of the human heart. He says, happiness is found when you have a companion who you can trust, who knows you and loves you. That's a paraphrase of what he said. So the quintessence of our lives is to be known and don't you, do you feel it, that to know and be known? Do you feel that as a, as, a, as a deep longing? To know and be known, to love and be loved. Do you feel those? If you don't feel them, I just, just think about it for a minute. Uh, we had some friends over the other night. They came over. I was talking to my wife about this last night. And uh, Lisa said, you know, when people come over, and there are people that we know various levels, but none of them, we don't know any of them super duper well. And she said, yeah, I have this desire just to cut to the chase. It's like you do the dance. It's like, you know, how are your kids napping and how your, 
how, what activities are they in and, and uh, what are you doing? How are you improving your house? But it's the dance because somewhere in there we want to know. I want to know you. I want you to know me. And so nobody walks out of that time saying it was really rich unless you drop below that surface into something where you're cutting to the chase to really know people and their real desires and their real pains and their real joys. And yet we live in this headphone culture. I I work on the college campus and whenever I walk across the campus, 75% of people have their headphones in. They're walking to their own soundtrack. And which has always been something of a desire of mine, but not to the detriment of my relationships. And when they have their headphones in, I think to myself, I want to know them, and I think they want to know me, but some competing desire is winning right now. And I think that competing desire is the fear of the exposure of their weakness. And I wonder if that's the case for you. So the quintessence of our lives is relationship. Now the quandary. Quandary means like a, a problem to solve, a tension. And this is the tension. Intimacy and image are at odds. If you haven't gathered that so far, intimacy and image are at odds. The preservation of your image is a direct barrier to intimacy. The preservation of your image is a direct barrier to intimacy. In heaven, it wouldn't be that way. If there were no weakness and no sin, that wouldn't be true. Intimacy could happen and we would just billow out with holiness and beauty and Christ imaging glory and we would give him the glory and, and we would know each other all the way and there would be no weakness. But that's not the life we live right now. The life we live right now is broken. You are broken. I am broken. And so I have these pains and these weaknesses and these longings and in the midst of that, I cannot be known unless I show them to you. So if, if the people that you consider your close friends only know you with a tie on and your hair parted and a, hey brother, how you doing? Doing well, see you Sunday. If that's the only way they know you and they don't know the early morning you, they don't know the right out of bed, I don't want to talk to another human for the first 15 minutes, my hair is going this way, my breath is putrid, right? Like that you then they don't know you. If they don't know those things about you, not necessarily like bad breath, but the bad breath metaphor stuff in your life, you know? The things you struggle with in your parenting and in your marriage. If they don't know that about you, they don't know you. And therefore, you are settling for something short of life. Eternal life. If you don't talk to people about that. And I want you to live. I want to live. Man, I want to live. God wants me to live. That's Jesus' prayer for us. So the question is, do you want to play the game or do you want to live? you want to play the game? Look put together? Talk put together? Or do you want to live? There's richness for you. If you would be willing to show who you are and let other people show them who they are. It's a risky game. Are you willing to play it? Or are you willing to really live as opposed to playing the, the image game? So, the quest. We move from the question to the quintessence to the quandary to the quest. And I'm running out of cue words. I just want to put feet on this a little bit because it's like I don't, I'm not saying to you, hey, make sure next time when you come to church that you don't comb your hair and your, you know, your shirt's untucked. That's not what I'm saying. 
I'm saying I want to I help you with a couple of, of practical things that we can do to start moving toward a culture of candor, a culture of intimacy, a culture of real life that looks more like the eternal life between the Father and the Son. Two things. One, confession. Moving toward a culture of confession. When I say confession, I don't mean confessing your sins to God. I don't mean doing what we just did a few minutes ago that's a valuable thing to have a moment of silence to confess to the Lord. And I don't mean Catholic confession where you know, you go in this private little place and you talk to that screen and to just, you know, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. That's not what I mean. In James 5, verse 16, it says, hang on, let me find it. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has, a, has great power as it is working. So it's a pretty clear command. It's right there in James 5. Confess your sins to one another. You don't just confess your sins this way, you confess your sins this way. You tell people when you have sinned. So this is where the rubber meets the road. When you break up into a small group at at the women's Bible study, or when you're at man-to-man and it gets to that time of prayer requests, or when you're in your community group and you have prayer requests, maybe you feel the same tension that I do. The other, Friday morning we were at man-to-man and uh, we got to that time during man-to-man where we share prayer requests at our table. And I was last. I was going to give my request last. And I felt this thing in my heart, this battle. And I thought, well, I can either talk about the circumstantial needs of our lives. We're about to adopt a baby. And we have some uh, you know, safety for the baby and financial provision and, and all this stuff. Or I could talk about uh, something that my wife or my kids are dealing with. Oh, you know, something circumstantial like that, or, you know, like a, a grandma having um, hip replacement surgery, which are, all those are important things, very important things. But I could also say, guys, I've just, I've been, I've been questioning God a little bit, and it's, it's been hard for me, and that'd be real. Or, guys, um, when I come home from work, and I've had a full day of meeting with college students and campus outreach staff, and, and whatever I'm doing, I'm tired, and then I'm struggling with looking at my phone and not paying attention to my kids, like just playing some time-wasting game or texting my friends or reading ESPN, and I should be with my friends, my, my, my kids. Can you, I mean, Annie's been needing that this week. I'm, I'm just, I'm telling you, Annie's been needing that from me, and she's been feeling disconnected from me, and I have not given myself fully to Annie. And so I can either tell them that, or I can say adoption, for adoption coming up. And so you see the bulletins of a lot of Southern Baptist churches, and like on the small Southern Baptist churches, and on the back of the bulletin, it'll be like such and such health, such and such health, such and such health, such and such health, and whatever the health issue is. And health issues should be prayed for, but those do not engender intimacy. You say, I confess my sin to you. C.S. Lewis, in, in The Problem of Pain, says things really well because he always did. He said about our confession, he says, we've never told the whole truth. We may confess ugly facts, the meanest cowardice or the shabbiest and most prosaic impurity, but the tone is false. What he means is as soon as it's out of our mouths, it's not really reflecting what's really going on inside. No one could guess how familiar and in a sense congenial, like friendly to your soul these things were. How much of a peace with all the rest He goes on to say, we imply and often believe that habitual vices are exceptional single acts and make the opposite mistake about our virtues, like the bad tennis player who calls his normal form his bad days 
and mistakes his rare successes for his normal. He goes on to say, but the important thing is that we should not mistake our inevitably limited utterances, the way we speak our sin, for a full account of the worst that is inside. So there's really a two-step process here. I'm saying, one, speak your sin. Try. Say what your sin is to people. And then secondly, when you speak your sin, try to actually account for what it really is. Yeah, you know, I've been in lots of men's groups and we'll say, pride, pray for my pride, pray for my lust. Like, like a blanket statement. It's like, no, confess specific sins about your real heart so that people know you. It's confession. We practice confession. Why is it scary? Why is it scary to confess your sins? I'll give you two reasons. One, it's a death to your image. Your image dies. Whatever image you've been trying to portray around here dies when you say something that sounds like I'm a bad father. I care more about the ESPN article. I care more about the stats than I do about my daughter. And every day I could be messing up my daughter for her life. She's looking to me as a picture of God. Breaks my image. That's scary. And the reason it's scary, this gets to number two, and this is the deep reason why it's scary to confess your sins is because they might not, those people that you confess to, they might not love you anymore. That's what you're feeling. I mean, they'll love you on some level, but they might not quite respect you the same way. They might not respond to you the same way. They might not love you anymore. But I, here's just a counterintuitive encouragement for you. I had a friend, have a friend, who decided that in, in line with 2 Corinthians... And what Paul does, he was going to boast in his weakness every day, at least to somebody. He was going to tell somebody a way that he was weak or bad at something. Some deficiency about himself. That seems kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it? It would be like cashiers at the grocery store. His wife would, be, would come back to him and be like, um, it would, how, how in the world did you get into that conversation with that person? And he would say, I just told him something I was bad at. <laughs> told him my weakness because what happens in that moment is not that your respect with them diminishes but actually that it increases your relatability increases I was sitting with a friend two days ago at lunch at the Rio Chico delicious and Rio Chico I'm just if you like spicy stuff they have this sauce called El Yucateco it's that like nuclear green stuff you put it in the salsa and mix it up we love it I like it more than most I'm just going to tell you so anyway we're, we're sitting there me and a friend, I discipled this guy in college, and we've been friends since. He was on staff of Campus Outreach in Greenville, and, and we're sitting there, and he moved off of staff several years ago to Charlotte. And I told him us moving from Minnesota to Charleston was a tough thing, not meant to be uprooted. It's a hard thing to move your whole family. And, and he said to me, you know, when we moved from staff with CO Greenville to, to Charlotte, I struggled with alcohol. And... I never struggled with alcohol before. It was weird. And, and you could tell when he said it that it was a tough thing to say. And I told him, I said, buddy, I want you to know that the fact that you told me that you struggle with alcohol does not make you less relatable or even respectable in my eyes. Because what you just described is my battle. Not that I'm currently or have been struggling with alcohol. I could have been, but I wasn't. But it's just that He's just saying, this is who we are. We're a ragtag crew. And so the freedom to be able to say, 
I struggle with that, is, is an opening up of intimacy, and people want that. You want that. I promise you, you want that, even if there's some hard resistance against it. That's confession. Correction is the second one. This one might even be harder. Confession and correction are two practical ways forward. I'd rather call it restoration, but it doesn't start with a C. Um, restoration sounds better than correction. Both are used in different translations of Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Uh, this is its own sermon probably, so maybe next year I'll, I'll preach on this one. Um, but in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, it says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's correct, or restore, offer restoration. Say, hey, you have sin, let's talk about it, and let's, let's go at this together. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And I don't think that's so much saying if they're struggling with alcohol, you might struggle with alcohol. I think it's saying if they're struggling with a sin, you might think you're better than them. So keep watch on yourself. That's what you might be tempted to do. Bear one another's burdens. Bear their sins with them, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So here we have another depiction of intimacy. This is a, a symptom of the good disease of intimacy. Is a culture of correction, of restoration. I said nine months ago, there's really no growth without intimacy. You don't grow without knowing who people are. And so when you have, you're growing in this intimacy and you see somebody who's struggling, you come to them and you say, hey, I see that this has been a trend in your life. It's not every time you see anything that they've ever done wrong. Because it would be constant. It's, if you see a trend, if you see them caught in a spiritual trespass, in a, in a trespass, you or a spiritual come with gentleness and talk to them about it. And, and I just don't know that our like, evangelical Christian culture as a whole is worse at anything than we are at this. At, at speaking confrontational, restorative words. I've had hundreds of conversations with people who said, I've really struggled. I've been struggling with um, Jimbo. Jimbo is, he's just, um, it seems like he's been real self-involved and hasn't really cared about us and hasn't been around. I think he might be a little bit more into, he might be worshiping his money, something like that. And I'm like, have you told him about it? You talked to him about it? And inevitably, the answer is no. That's not even a category. Of course, I haven't talked to him about it. That would cause tension. That's messy. I don't do messy. So can you give me some advice as to how to deal with this in the path of least resistance? And that's not the wise path. The path of least resistance is probably almost never the wisest way forward. And certainly not the most Christ-glorifying way forward. We would say, oh, I'm not going to talk to him about it. But it's scary. And the reason it's scary, I could talk for another 45 minutes about that, but next year. The reason it's scary is because it's the same reason that confession is scary. Because they might not love you anymore. They might not love you anymore. There's a song by The Fray called How to Save a Life. I don't know if you guys have heard it. I like the song. It's on the radio a lot. And it's basically about a friend coming to con confront another friend. I think about like their alcoholism or their drug use. And it says in the chorus over and again, where did I go wrong? I lost a friend somewhere along in the bitterness. Where did I go wrong? I lost a friend because love, I lovingly confronted them. That's a real risk in correction. And that fear that they might, may not love you anymore can be consuming. And so you decide, we're not going to do real life and real intimacy and real mess, real relationship 
because that's risky. I don't like risk. There's a book called Daring Greatly by a lady named Brene Brown. It's actually called Daring Greatly, and colon, and then there's like two sentences of subtitle, but I'm not going to give you that. Uh, and she says this. She says, connection is why we're here, is what we've been saying. It's what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. The power that connection holds in our lives was confirmed when the main concern about connection emerged as the fear of disconnection. The fear that something we have done or failed to do, something about who we are or where we come from, has made us unlovable and unworthy of connection. What she's saying is we live in a relational context whether we like it or not. We long for connection whether we like it or not. And so the fact that we would not say who we are, the fact that we would not confront people and correct them and try to restore them and bear their burdens, those things are actually manifestations of our desire for connection. Because we're so afraid of disconnection. So what we're saying is we would rather settle for surface level connection because at least it feels something like connection than risk the idea of going deep and severing that connection. Okay? And I'm telling you that mess is better. Mess is better. We have a couples group every week. And a few of us get together and we basically air our dirty laundry. And we say, this is what we thought about. This is where I was stupid. This is where I thought my wife was stupid. And everybody just speaks in. It's rich. But it's messy. And, it, and it's not even as messy as it could be. We're still trying to get to a place of safety here. But it is far more Christ-glorifying because at the end we say, Lord, we got one hope, and that is that you are our substitute because the richness and the strength and the stability of our marriages is not what we are landing on as our boast. So we get to the last piece, which is the Q blank, because I don't have a Q word for it. It's the solution. It's the power. Uh, the quantum, maybe? Close? Um, how are we going to do this? I don't think we're just going to start walking down the hall and everybody's going to freely jump around saying, saying their sin and be fine with it. There's a, there's a deeper, heavier process that needs some serious power to walk through this. Um, this is how we talk about it as a staff team. We say that we, we need a safety net. Okay, we need a safety net. If, if you have two acrobats that are about to perform a move, we'll call it the double Jablonski. Okay? I made that up, but it sounds like a really good move. The double Jablonski. And the, and the double Jablonski is this double backflip in the air. You get caught by the person on the other trapeze who's hanging by their knees, and they catch you by the wrists. You say, how in the world am I going to try the double Jablonski? And the answer is because I have a safety net. Okay? Because I have a safety net. So that if I go for the double Jablonski and they just graze my fingers and I fall off and there's this disconnect and it doesn't feel right and it feels messy and it's like, oh man, we didn't hit the double Jablonski. It wasn't a simple forgive and forget, easy conversation. We hit that safety net. And that safety net is the fact that we love each other. Okay? We love each other. And, and, and you land in it. Or if you want to go with like the motor, motor cross analogy. Those motorcycle people who do the backflips, I'm always like, how do they practice? Did they just die? And like the, the people who, who nail it in practice, they get to do it in their performance. But what actually happens is they land in this big foam pit, I think. That's what happens. And so this is your foam pit. The fact that at the bottom of it, we're saying, I'm with you. And you're with me. We're safe together. You're welcome in your weakness, like we talked about nine months ago. Here's the challenge, though. This is, this is Brene Brown. We're almost done. Uh, I define vulnerability as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. With that definition in mind, let's think about love. Waking up every day and loving someone who may or may not love us back. 
whose safety we can't ensure, who may stay in our lives or may leave without a moment's notice, who may be loyal to the day they die or betray us tomorrow. That's vulnerability. In every horizontal human relationship we have, that is the risk that we're taking. It's, it's in your marriage. It's everywhere. Okay, I have no guarantees that my wife will have full affection for me tomorrow, that she'll be with me tomorrow. You don't have guarantees here. There is a safety net. I think we, we, this, is, this group right here, everybody who's in Christ is your forever family. You're going to spend forever with them doing that George McDonald thing. You can spend forever with them and they will love you all the way and you will love them back and they will know you all the way and you will know them back and you'll be safe with them. And there is a, a shadow of that now, but you know that we all have our own selfish sins in our hearts. So that safety net that we have is, you know, kind of like fishing line or something. It might hold us and we're hoping that it will and I think it's something that we can actually say, there's a safety net here. I'm going to go to this person. I know that they love me and I love them. But it might not make it. Let's say that it's 15-pound test and I'm a 170-pound man. It kind of depends on the tension and how I land and everything. But let's say I break through that net. There has to be a layer underneath. There has to be a layer underneath. And, and the unbreakable safety net that allows you to do the double Jablonski is not your relationship with these people. It is the fact that Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. It's the only relationship you have that doesn't fail. So a few verses later in Galatians 6, Paul says, Far be it from me to boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It means if I think I can boast in this safety net, I cannot. And if I make it my final boast, it will not be a redemptive relationship, I promise. But if you go underneath to Isaiah 49, where it says, I think it's God talking through Isaiah, and he says, but, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. And this is what God says. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child or have no compassion on the son of her womb? That's God's response. And he says this, even these, even these women might forget, but I will not forget you. I've written you on the palms of my hands. I've engraved your name in the palms of my hands. That's what God says. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So the safety that you have to feel in your heart to be able to perform the double Jablonski is that in this universe, you have the unfailing eternal love of the one who was able to save you outright. A substitute who loves you. A father who loves you. And it never goes away. That's called faith. And so then, if you believe that you, and then you, you have that eternal life vertically, then you can step into eternal life horizontally. And what the beginnings of eternal life horizontally look like are an attempt at that double Jablonski. It's to say, hey, I want to tell you what my sin is. I want to tell you my sin against you. I've been jealous of you for the money you make. I'm sorry. And that person might come back and say, I forgive you, brother, and I'm so, I feel so much more connected. Or they might say, there might be this awkward mess for a little while. But he will never leave you nor forsake you. And it is better to try for both being known and deeply loved than it is to kind of be known and kind of be loved. So, we're done. I just want to, just to clarify, we have to embrace the awkwardness here. If we're going to start moving forward, we might look like a little bit of baby deer. We all do this to some level, but we need some help. And, you know, baby deer looks awkward trying to walk. It, that might happen in that 
You're going to walk down the hall and you're like, how do I do this? And I'm not saying to you, every time you see somebody in the hall, this happened to me after the last sermon, creating culture of candor all the time. People be like, how are you really doing? And I'll be like, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. I do. I have 10 seconds in that moment. Uh, so, and I have a one-hour answer. So I'm not saying like every conversation you have in, have in the hall needs to be this like deep, tear-filled thing. I am saying, A, that I want us to move toward feeling safe that way, and B, that we would pursue each other outside of that moment to have those conversations, okay? And then secondly, this is the last thing, is you don't have to stop being joyful. It's not like we have to be all melancholy and be like, oh, I'm terrible, my life is terrible. We rejoice all the time. We're celebrating the grace of Christ in everything we do. In fact, we have a quote that we use all the time amongst the CO staff here. Where it's from Brendan Manning in the Ragamuffin Gospel. It says, the tilted halo of the saved sinner is worn loosely and with easy grace. What that means is if I know my, tilt, my halo's tilted, I just don't have to take myself that seriously. I know that I have the grace of Christ. I'm going to wear it loosely. And I'm going to be free with the stuff that is messed up in my life because that's not what I'm banking on. And when I'm free with it, I can mourn it rightly, I can be corrected for it, I can confess it, and then we move forward in real intimacy and real restoration. That's what I'm saying. And so we're going to try it together, stumbling our way through like baby deer as we go, and then we'll see what God has for us, okay? Let's pray. Father, we need help. Um, I feel so often much more keenly the fear of people not respecting me or not loving me than I do the freedom of the grace of Christ. So I need help. We need help. I pray that you would help us just to make baby steps forward here. We want life. We know that you have said this is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent and that in that you pray, Lord, that we would become part of the fellowship of the Trinity in a sense as we are one with you and then one with one another. Would you help us that way by killing that thing in us that wants to preserve our image? Um, you can do it. You can do it to your glory. And we can only do it because we know that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And we pray that you would impress that upon us even more today. In Jesus' name, amen.